Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm beginning in Matthew 26. We're still on the Mount of Olives with Jesus and his disciples. He's given them the Olivet Discourse in chapter 24 of Matthew. In chapter 25, he's given them three parables that are directly related to the Olivet Discourse, namely the taking of what... Well, uh, Matthew 24 is about the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem and taking away of the kingdom from the Jews and giving it to the Gentile church. And then we get to Matthew 25. There's three parables that talk about that encourage the disciples to keep working for the kingdom while they wait during this time when Jesus is apart from them. And now we get into Matthew 26. Jesus, we hear about the plot against Jesus' life while Jesus is still on the Mount of Olives. The first five verses of Matthew 26 take place on the Mount of Olives, which was Tuesday of Passion Week. Then verse 6 starts on Thursday of Passion Week. Wednesday is completely skipped over. And chapter 6 starts with the, the anointing of Jesus in the house of Simon the leper at Bethany. So that's the background. So let's get started with verse 1. Matthew 26, verse 1 and 2. When Jesus had finished saying all this, all what? All of what I just said. All of it discourse in the three parables in Matthew 25. When he finished saying all that, he told his disciples, You know that the Passover takes place after two days, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. This is one of the many, many, many places where Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And they had such a hard time believing that. And especially when he talks about the timing of it. Two days from then, he was going to be crucified. In other words, he's saying to his disciples, I've got two days to live, guys. Oh, that must have been hard for them to handle. Now, he's, Jesus told them, you know that the Passover takes place after two days and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. What does that no refer to? What do the disciples know? Well, they know that the Passover takes place after two days. No problem with that. But did, do they really know that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified? I don't think they did know that, actually. They, up until that point, they had shown remarkable obtuseness at the thought that Jesus might die. Peter at Caesarea Philippi, for example, re- remonstrated until Jesus called him Satan. He kept saying, no, Lord, it, this shall never happen to you. No, you shall never die. And, Je- and, Peter, and Jesus told Peter, Satan, get behind me. The disciples, of course, were dreaming of worldly glory in a messianic kingdom. You recall earlier in the, in the, in the book of Matthew, James and John asked who was going to sit on Jesus' right hand in the kingdom as they came up there with, his, with their mother. So the disciples didn't, un, didn't really know that Jesus was going to be crucified. So I think what Jesus is referring to here is you know that the Passover takes place after two days. They did know that. They didn't know much else. It depends on whether you distribute that no over those two clauses. You know that when the Passover takes place, clause number one, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified, clause number two, does the you know the you know, does it refer to both clauses? I don't think so. I could be wrong. But at any rate, if he might have been saying, you know it because I told you, but they might only know it in their heads. They don't really know it in their hearts yet. Here's an example, Matthew 20, and I've got about seven or eight examples, I think. But here's one example, Matthew 20, verse 18, where Jesus tells them, Earlier, listen, we're going up to Jerusalem. This is while they're still in Galilee. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. So the disciples were directly told by Jesus what was going to happen. He's still telling them. Now, at the Passover is when he was going to die. And, of course, that is a perfect time. It's a perfectly appropriate time because Jesus is the Passover lamb, sacrificed for the sins of the people. So the typology is perfect. The symbolism of the Old Testament is perfect. Now, when was this? Passover was the 14th of Nisan that year. It was two days from then. This was Tuesday, so Wednesday, Thursday. That's the traditional view. I will say that scholars will debate until the cows come home whether the 
whether it was Wednesday or Thursday night that the Passover took place. Now, of course, you've got the problem that the Jewish day starts at night. So then my NIV study Bible says that the Passover actually started on the 15th of Nisan, which was Thursday night. Excuse me. Yes, Thursday night. There's so much disagreement on the timing of the Lord's Supper. Some say it was Wednesday evening. Some people say it was Thursday evening. I'm going to go with the tradition of you Thursday because this is way over my at my per, at my current stage of ignorance, this thing is way over my head. This is for PhDs in New Testament studies to figure out. Some people say it involves different calendars. There's a problem between Matthew, the Synoptic Gospels timing and the Gospel of John and so forth. And some people say, well, Jesus couldn't have been killed on Friday. That's the first day of Passover because it was illegal to try somebody on Jesus. And that doesn't get convinced me too much because... A lot of illegal things happened at Jesus' trial. It was at night, for example. That was illegal. The witnesses, the, the witness procedure was illegal, too. There's all kinds of illegal things about that kangaroo court that condemned Jesus, so it doesn't, doesn't bother me that it was on Friday, according to the traditional view. But at any rate, like I say, I'm not going to get into that. We're going to assume that two days from now, on Thursday, they're going to get ready for the Passover meal, and when sundown, that was Friday night, 15th of Nisan, they would start the Passover. Now, another technical problem here, the word Passover. Sometimes it's used to describe one thing, sometimes another. It can refer to the day of Passover, or it can refer to the week following Passover. That week following Passover in the scriptures is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the Old Testament. But it directly followed on Passover day, and so those eight days got lumped together by custom, and after a while, people started calling Passover plus the Feast of Unleavened Bread those eight days. They would just call that Passover for short. Sometimes they would just say the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they would include Passover at the beginning. My NIV study Bible says that by the time of the New Testament, the term Passover and the term Feast of Unleavened Bread, those two terms are virtually interchangeable. Now, Jesus says the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. That's his messianic title that he used for himself, the most common title. It's used 81 times in the Gospels. It's never used by anybody else except Jesus. Other people use the term Son of David. The term is messianic. It comes from Daniel 7, 13 through 14, which is a key verse in understanding the Olivet Discourse, chapters 24 and 25. Daniel 7, 13 through 14 says this, I continued watching in the night visions, and I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. There's the coming. It's the coming up, not coming down. Jesus didn't worry about that little detail. Jesus, the son of man, approached the ancient of days. That was God and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory in a kingdom. So this is Jesus uh, entering into his kingdom, which is appropriate here because in AD 70, the idea is the church is going to be fully established when the rabbinic authorities are destroyed and Jesus will fully receive his kingdom and Daniel goes on so the people those of every people nation and language to serve him the spread to the Gentiles outside of the Jews the spread of the kingdom to the Gentiles outside of the Jews that fits perfectly with the idea of 8070 destroying the kingdom of the Jews who were hindering that spread Daniel goes on to say his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed so when Jesus talks about the son of man he's talking about the messiah but isn't that kind of poignant? He's saying the Son of Man, the Messiah, will be handed over to be crucified. My Jewish people are going to crucify the Messiah. Amazingly ironic, tragic thing. Now notice that Jesus prophesies, at, and he prophesies accurately, the day of his death, as John Gill points out. And note how calmly he does it. Hey guys, two days from now I'm going to be dead. Now how does that square with the triumphal entry? This is Tuesday, just a few days, Monday, Sunday couple days earlier was the triumphal entry when they rode when 
The people escorted him into Jerusalem shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna the king. Well, it could be that the Pharisees and the Sadducees suborned the crowd, suborned the crowd and changed their mind, or it could be just a different people, a mob created by the chief priests and Pharisees. This is what Adam Clark believes. They went out and got their own anti-Jesus people, They're not the same people as the ones who were saying, Hosanna, he's the king. I think Clark probably makes a lot of sense. I don't think people would change their minds that fast about Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 3, Then the chief priest and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas. So while Jesus is out there on the Mount of Olives, back in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders are conspiring to get Jesus killed. They are meeting in the palace of the high priest of the house of the high priest Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas was the high priest from AD 18 to AD 36, his father-in-law was high priest from 6 A.D. to 15 A.D. earlier. These two high priests are prominent in the trial of Jesus, so we need to remember their names. Caiaphas is the son-in-law. Annas is the father-in-law. Both of them were high priests at one time at different terms. Caiaphas was his surname. His given name was Joseph, so his name was Joseph Caiaphas. Now, an interesting fact about him that two years after he managed to get Jesus crucified, he was deposed from his high priestship, along with Pontius Pilate, who also had Jesus crucified. They got what, come, what was coming to them. The go, a governor of, of Syria named Vitellius, who's kind of famous because he's the fourth of the year of four emperors, for those who like Proto-Orthodoxy and like to study what happened in 68 and 69, right before AD 70, Vitellius was the fourth of those four emperors. He was, at this time, the governor of Syria. He, he deposed Caiaphas. Caiaphas then killed himself. This is cited in Josephus' Antiquities. John Gill speculates as why he killed himself. Perhaps he was disgraced at losing the high priesthood at the hands of Vitellius, or his conscience was stricken, stricken over killing the Son of God. I suspect it was the former. He didn't like losing the high priesthood. I don't think he had any remorse about killing Jesus. These people were too evil, too nasty. Now, the chief priests and the elders assembled in the palace of the high priests. Well, first of all, why were they meeting in the palace of the high priest? The normal meeting of the Sanhedrin was as a room in the temple. Well, this is not in the temple. This is in a private house, Caiaphas' house. Why didn't they meet in the Sanhedrin? Well, probably for privacy. After all, they were conspiring to commit murder. And when you conspire to commit murder, you probably don't want to do it in a public place. Word of the conspiracy might get out. Who were the chief priests and the elders? Well, there's some options on the chief priests. You could talk about former high priest. For example, Annas was a former high priest. Uh, you, uh, elders is probably referring to civil magistrates, the people who were in the Sanhedrin. Politics and religion is kind of close in Israel. The religious system was kind of separate from the political system. The Sanhedrin had a lot of religious people on it, but they mainly dealt with judicial matters. But, but theological matters came up also. But at any rate, these chief priests who could have been the former high priests, they also could have been heads of the 24 courses of priests that came in. Every two weeks, they would do a shift change for priests during the year. The heads and each shift change was called a course, and it was 24. I mean, it could refer to the 24 heads of the courses of the priest. It could have been chief, uh, regular priests who were also chosen to be a member of the governing body, the Sanhedrin, so they would be called chief priests because they were not just religious priests officiating in a religious capacity, but they were serving in a political capacity also. I think it's easier just to say it was the former high priest. I don't know what it is, but let's just put it this way. The political big shots and the religious big shots were out there trying to get Jesus. That's what they were doing. All at once, they were going to get him. Matthew 26, verses 4 through 5. And they conspired to arrest Jesus in a treacherous way and kill him. Treacherous way. In other words, not according to law. 
Not during the festival, they said, so there won't be rioting among the people. Remember, there are hundreds of thousands of people there. The population swelled from about 50,000 normally to several hundred thousand during the Passover feast, according to my NIV study Bible. It would, of course, be dangerous to arrest Jesus with such a large and excitable crowd present. It's ironic that's what they did do, according to most people. They did arrest Jesus on the Passover. And the why? Because they had an opening when Judas betrayed Jesus and gave him information that would allow them to arrest him privately in the Garden of Gethsemane. But at first they were scared to arrest him because of so many people. And the people, of course, were behind Jesus, mostly. This conspiracy is referred to according to John Gill in Psalms chapter 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire against the Lord as anointed one. Of course, if you translate earth as land, which it retz, retz in the uh, Old Testament is land or earth, the kings of the land take their stand. Or how about the rulers of the land take their stand, and the rulers conspire together? That's referring to exactly what happened here. Annas, Caiaphas, the chief priest, and the elders. They conspired against G- against Yahweh and his anointed one, the Messiah, Jesus. And I think Gil's right about that. I think that psalm predicts pretty well what's going on here. Now, this fact that they actually decided, ended up arresting him during the festival, even though they had planned not to arrest him during the Passover, it was actually providential because when they arrested him and crucified him, there were, there were hundreds of thousands of people in the city that could see what happened. Here's a quote from John Gill. It was doubtless of the very first importance that the crucifixion of Christ, which was preparatory to the most essential achievement of Christianity, viz. his resurrection from the grave, should be exhibited before many witnesses and in the most open manner, that infidelity might not attempt in the future to invalidate the evidences of the Christian religion by alleging that these things were done in a corner. Oh no, they were not done in a corner. There were hundreds of thousands of people there to see it. Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 7. We now shift from the Tuesday of Passion Week. We're now at on Thursday of Passion Week. This is according to uh, NET Harmony I'm using, Net Bible Harmony I'm using. We're on th- uh, thir- Wednesday. Jesus took a day off. Don't hear a thing about Wednesday, and I suspect Tuesday was a pretty exhausting day. It exhausted me getting through Matthew 24, 25, and the first five verses of 26 because Jesus and his disciples were doing an awful lot of stuff and they were encountering an awful lot of opposition. So anyway, here we are on Thursday, chapter 26 of Matthew, verses 6 through 7. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon, a man who had a serious skin disease, that's the way the Holman Christian Study Bible translates leprosy, a serious skin disease. This is Simon the leper according to traditional parlance. A woman approached him, approached Jesus, with an alabaster jar of very expensive Before we go any oil. further, she we need to say that Bethany is a small village on the Mount of Olives nearby, where Jesus was with his disciples, giving the Olivet Discourse. All right, now, before we go any further, we've got a, a bodacious harmonization problem here. It's actually not that hard, in my opinion, if you adopt the way I'm going to harmonize it. There are four instances of Jesus getting anointed with oil. There's one in Matthew, there's one in Mark, there's one in Luke, and one in John. If you take the one in Matthew and Mark, which most people agree refer to the same anointing, which happened two days before the Passover, if you distinguish that from the one that happens in John, which happened six days before the Passover, at a different place, most probably, and distinguish those 
three further from an anointing at the house of Simon the Pharisee, not Simon the leper, but Simon the Pharisee, which happened a good while before in Galilee, not even in Jerusalem. So we're going to throw out the anointing of Jesus at the house of Simon the Pharisee, and we're going to look at the anointing of Jesus here in Bethany, one two days before the Passover, one six days before the Passover. Now, in order to do this, I constructed a table which lists about 14, let's see, 3, 4, 5, 6, about 13 events. And I looked in to see if those events were occurred in Matthew 26, or did they occur in Mark 14, or did they occur in John 12. All three of these passages have an anointing at Bethany, and so it makes some people think that these three anointings are the same. In fact, let me just tell you the things that are in common which makes people think that way. First of all, the anointings were at Bethany. Second of all, the kind of oil that was anointed with was nard, as it says in, in Mark. Matthew doesn't say, but it very well could have been nard. So that's reconcilable. reconcilable. The oil that was used in John chapter 12 was expensive. In Mark, it was 300 denarii, which is a year's wages. So that's pretty expensive. And in Matthew, it's very expensive. Well, that's reconcilable. That means it could have been the same event. In John, the amount of oil that was used was a pound of oil. In Matthew and Mark, it was a flask. Well, that's reconcilable. And in all, in Matthew and Mark and in John, gee, uh, the, the complaint by there was a complaint that this money should not have been spent on the oil for anointing Jesus, but it should have been spent on the poor. And in all three versions, Jesus rebukes the complainers and said, "Look, she's preparing me for my burial. That's in common." And in Matthew and Mark, a woman anoints. In John, it says Mary of Bethany. She's a woman, so you can reconcile that. And Jesus, in all three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, says the poor is all going to be with you, but I'm not going to be. So all of that makes you think, well, maybe it's the same event. Well, but look at the problems. In John, they're at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're in Bethany, but they're in a different house. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house Whereas in Matthew, they're at the house of Simon the leper. In John, the anointing took place six days before the Passover, which would be before the triumphal entry, actually. In Matthew and Mark, it was two days before the Passover. That's to me, isn't very hard to reconcile. In fact, to me, it's impossible to reconcile. In John, Jesus was anointed on his feet. The woman who anointed him, Mary, anointed his feet and washed his feet with her hair. In Matthew and Mark, the anointing was on his head. In John, it was Judas Iscariot who complained about the oil being wasted on Jesus, whereas Matthew and Mark, it was, well, in Matthew it was the disciples, plural, and in Mark it was some, which is plural, which doesn't sound the same to me. So the easiest way to reconcile this is we're talking about two different events that had common characteristics. That way you don't have to worry about trying to reconcile the things that don't reconcile. Now, people do try to do that. I think they're wasting their time. So we're going to take it where... We're not going to worry about the anointing at John's house, Mary anointing Jesus' feet. We'll do that when we get to the book of John. Right now, we're just going to look at Matthew and Mark and discuss this anointing using those two parallel passages. All right, what's this alabaster jar? Alabaster, I think it's some kind of a fancy shell, a seashell of some sort. Uh, some people say... Uh, the NIV Study Bible says that most alabaster of ancient times was actually marble, but whatever it was, marble, seashell, alabaster, I don't know. It was permanent. It was valuable, and that was necessary because that oil was very expensive. As I said earlier, 300 denarii, a denarii is a day's wage. When you consider six working days a week, six in the 300 days, you're talking about about a year's worth of 
labored to buy that oil in one little flask. The jar that's mentioned in verse 7, the alabaster jar, I just called it a flask. The Holman Christian Study Bible calls it, a, calls it a jar. It was a sealed flask with a long neck that was broken off when the contents were used. It was a one-use thing, one-off use. You cracked the, the neck and then poured out the contents. It contained enough ointment for one application, according to my NIV Study Bible. Simon the leper, let's talk about his disease. Nobody knows if the disease was the modern Hansen's disease, which is modern-day leprosy. Now, some people object. Simon the leper, he's eating with people openly in a village. Lepers are supposed to be in leper colonies, according to the law. Here's John Gill's answers. answer. Lepers were only forbidden to stay in walled cities. They were not forbidden to stay in an open village like Bethany was. That's one answer. Not only that, Jesus, or another possibility is that Jesus had probably healed him in an earlier time. In fact, Simon the leper could have been, could have been hosting Jesus from a sense of gratitude for having healed him in an earlier time. So that's not really a problem. Now, of course, the woman that uh, anointed him, well, if you identify this with the sixth day earlier, the sixth day before the Passover anointing in John 12, then we know the woman was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and, and Martha, Mary of Bethany. I don't believe that, so I don't think it's Mary. So who is it? Well, some people say it's this Mary Magdalene. Eh, I don't think. Anyway, there's a big discussion about which Mary it is. We'll just leave it, or which woman it was, we'll leave it. As unknown, it doesn't matter. Now let's talk about the anointing of his head. This actually was a common practice. It was not a one-off event, according to John Gill. The anointing was usually done at festivals, large entertainments, and weddings. Here's some scripture that indicate this, Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. So there you have a table, lots of food, you got a Lots of wine because his cup is overflowing. And also his head was anointed with oil. So people got their heads anointed with oil at big feasts and banquets. Luke chapter 7 verse 46. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she is anointed by feet with fragrant oil. This is the Luke 7 anointing I told you about earlier. So the, according to Jameson Fawcett and Brown, the only use of this oil was to refresh and exhilarate a grateful compliment in the east amid the closeness of a heated atmosphere with many guests at a feast. Well, it could have just been a common practice of showing common hospitality, but it could have been that she was saying, I believe you're the Messiah. I believe you're the king. I prefer to think that. Matthew 26, 8 through 9, verse 8. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. A waste, a waste to anoint Jesus. Now, this indignation that the disciples felt, they kept it to themselves. We look at our detailed man, Mark 14, verse 4. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this fragrant oil been wasted to one another? But some were expressing indignation to, to one another. Not to Jesus, not to the woman, but to one another. Now, who were they indignant at? They could have been indignant at the woman for wasting all that valuable perfume. They could have been indignant at Jesus for letting the woman do it. They could have been indignant at nobody, neither the woman nor Jesus. They just thought the action was foolish, but they didn't blame the woman. She just thought she had misguided zeal. I don't think that's it. I think they were indignant. They were mad. Probably mad at the woman, in my opinion. Contrast the attitude of these disciples. One time earlier, I forgot exactly where they were in their ministry, but a village, I think it was in Samaria, was it not? I forgot where it was. The village wouldn't didn't receive the ministry of Christ. And so James and John, sons of thunder, decided to call down fire on the village. Master, shall we call down fire then destroy this village? So that was the attitude toward them. Now, here's a poor woman that wants to give everything she's got to Christ. And what do they do? They get angry with her. So, 
So we've got the disciples dealing with rebels against Christ. They want to destroy him. And then you got a poor woman who wants to give everything she's got to Christ, and they want to get angry at her. In other words, they, they've just, they were just mad at everybody. Now, John Gill makes the point that the disciples actually made a very plausible objection. I mean, money's hard to come by, and they could have fed a lot of people with a day's with 300 denarii. But this verse here shows that spending a lot of money on Jesus does not hurt the poor. That is a myth propagated by economic liberals who always think that there's a fixed sum of money in the world. If you give some money to rich people, then you're taking it away from poor people. They, never, they don't think dynamically. They don't realize that rich people are creating wealth, which actually, in, because rich people got to do something with their money, so they put it in banks or other financial institutions who then lend out money to other people to start business, and they hire people. But, of course, your typical social justice warrior who are now seem to be trying to influence so strongly the evangelical church, people like Tim Keller, they don't think like that. They don't understand that spending money on Jesus is not going to hurt the poor. High taxes and high government regulation will hurt the poor, but not but not uh, anointing Jesus with oil. That's not going to hurt the poor. If it would have hurt the poor, Jesus would have objected to it. He said, don't do that. He would have agreed with the disciples, but he didn't do it. Now, Jesus says the poor you still have with you. Now, a lot of times, in my opinion, this verse is misused because people say, well, the poor you have with you, so let's just don't worry about them. No, that's not what it meant. The verse... Uh, Jesus is referring to a passage in the law, Deuteronomy 15:11. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, You shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. So there, Moses says in Deuteronomy, The poor will never cease to be. The poor will always be with you. Therefore, because you will always have poor, open your hand, give to him. Continue helping the poor. So when Jesus says the poor will always be with you, it means keep on helping them. Don't stop helping them. That is a verse that has been woefully quoted out of context. I remember 40, 50 years ago when, when I was so interested in politics, I would hear politicians say that the poor will always be with you. And I think the idea was quit trying to let the government try to take care of the poor because the poor will always be with you. The best argument for not letting the government help the poor so much is the government destroys poor people. I have a friend, I think it was quoting Thomas Sowell, that African-American economist, very, uh, very well-known African-American economist, who said that African Americans survived slavery with the family intact. They survived Jim Crow with the family intact, but they didn't survive the welfare state with their family intact, and now the consequences have just been gosh awful. But anyway, again, even though this verse has been misused, uh, we need to look at it properly, which is we're always going to have poor people. There's always going to be people that got problems. They might be disabled. They just might be unlucky. Bad things happen to them. It's not that they're unwilling to work. It's that they can't work. Well, you've got to keep helping the poor like that. Anybody that's able, you help. Jesus doesn't say anything about the means here. I think he's talking about private. You shall freely open your hand. That's your private pocketbook, your charity. doesn't say the government. It was a Jewish custom, in fact, to give gifts to the poor on the evening of the Passover. Maybe that's what Jesus was referring to. Or what, excuse me, what the disciples were referring to. It's the day of the Passover. We're supposed to be giving poor, get, uh, presents to the poor. You could have sold that, that perfume, that ointment. We could have been giving gifts to the poor. And look what you did. So, the, you know, the objection was plausible. But Jesus doesn't buy it. Because we go to verse 10, chapter 26, verse 10 in Matthew. But Jesus, aware of this, aware of the griping of the disciples, their indignation, aware of this, said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. So apparently they, their indignation must have spread 
to such an extent that the woman found out about it, and it must have cut her to the quick. She might not have been bothered by being criticized by Pharisees, but to be criticized by Jesus' disciples probably hurt her feelings pretty bad, and Jesus goes to protect her. How did Jesus become aware of it? Here we go, was it supernatural because he's divine? No, I don't think so. He just probably, you know, lots of other times he knew they were talking foolishness, just figured it out. For example, in the boat going back from, where was it, the west side of um, Magdala over to Gadara, when they were in the boat and they were, and he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and they started talking to themselves about, oh, it's because we don't have any bed. Jesus knew what, he, knew what they were talking about. He can figure things out. Either supernaturally or naturally, whatever, he could have just looked at the looks on their faces. Now, they're, they're un, their nasty looks at the woman, their looks of disdain at the woman. Matthew 26, verse 11, Jesus says, You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This He's quoting that same verse I just quoted, Deuteronomy 15, 11. And again, I'll repeat, Jesus' intent was not to say that the poor should not be taken care of, but it was exactly the opposite. you still got to take care of the poor. He didn't see a contradiction with the woman's putting expensive oil on him and taking care of the poor. There was no contradiction. Why did the disciples not always have Jesus to pour oil on? Because he's getting ready to die. And again, he's trying to drive the point home, I'm getting ready to die. And in fact, he drives the point home even stronger in verse 12 of Matthew 26. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, Jesus continues, she, the unnamed woman, has prepared me for burial. And that's what they did for corpses. They would rub oil on it. Kind of, in fact, the Greek word there for prepared is embalm. So basically, he was getting embalmed ahead of his time with that oil. She was preparing him to die. Now, that's the way Jesus took it. Now, the woman might have taken it as an anointing to make him a king, or it could have been just to refresh him out of a heart of love. I don't think she was trying to anoint him to prepare him for burial, but Jesus meant it that way and took it that way. Now, how did she know? That he, if if it would have, if she was preparing him for burial, it would have to be by some kind of divine revelation, or she would have to have been very smart to figure out which way the political winds were blowing. I don't think so. I think she was trying to anoint him as king. But Jesus says, "Nope, I'm not going to be king right now. I'm going to be dead. I'm being prepared for, for burial." By the way, this is just what Jesus said four days earlier in, in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus of Bethany. He said the same thing. I'm being prepared for burial and. Some commentator I read on the internet made the point that Jesus repeated that. He got anointed twice, so he repeated the same teaching twice to drive home the point. I'm going to die, disciples. You've got to get that through your thick heads. I'm not going to be setting up the Messianic kingdom right now. I'm getting ready to die. Matthew 26, verse 13. I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her, to memorialize her. Now, how perfectly Jesus' prediction has been fulfilled. We're still talking about the woman did. In fact, I'm talking about what she did right now, and you're listening to what she did right now. Now, this, of course, is a direct contrast to the apostles' attitude of censure. They're criticizing the woman, and Jesus is saying she's going to be famous for forever, or wherever the gospel is proclaimed, which, in other words, her story is going to be told everywhere. So ends the story of the anointing at Bethany. We'll take up the portrayal by Judas Iscariot in the next audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.